This is the second part of my interview with Jerome Rose, which will be followed by the after party, where Phil, George, and I will discuss uh, the relative autonomy that different countries in different parts of the world have to free themselves, um, both of debt as well as of transnational organizations. If you start weakening those multilateral institutions, um, it actually weakens the creditor's power. And so whether... for reasons of ideology or simple chaos, um, you know, brought in by a Trump administration, isn't it better maybe to have a Republican in the White House for a lot of the rest of the world? Oh, that's a very nice and provocative question. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if it is, because I think when push comes to shove, the U.S. government is going to go the way of Wall Street. And um, what I mean by that is um, if Wall Street is heavily exposed to a country's debt, it will make sure that the government responds in a way that serves its interests. And I think the GOP in that respect is just as much in the pocket of Wall Street as the Democratic Party is. Um, and we might wonder to what extent that is also true um, in the era of Donald Trump. Um, but I, I think when push comes to shove, at least historically, um, a Republican administration um, hasn't really done much to oppose Wall Street when it comes to these international debt crises. So we look at the Reagan administration in the 80s or the Bush administration in the 2000s, it, it, it did fairly similar things. It spoke a mm. rhetoric of free markets and anti-interventionism while actually going out into the world and being aggressively interventionist in practice. Um, so there is a kind of contradiction there, a paradox, yeah. if you will. I guess just, uh, I mean, between... more just if it happens, you know, to underfund the IMF, for example, the IMF turns out weaker and it's able right. to less able to play its enforcement role. And here, I think it is important uh, because that's actually what did happen to an extent during the Bush years is that there was that sort of slow, I wouldn't say suffocation, but there were attempts on the part of a Republican controlled Congress to withhold funding to the IMF and to get the IMF to um, essentially pursue more of a of a Republican line, which is less multilateral and more U.S. Uh, national interests oriented. Um and that may have weakened the IMF in the case of Argentina. It gave them less of a hand in the negotiations with our, the Argentine government. And the Argentine government made use of that, um, that policy space that opened up as a result of that. Um, so in that sense, I think there might be an element of truth to it um, for reasons entirely sort of um, extraneous um, to to the the actual interests of the Republican Party, which have historically been very interventionist, um, they might end up weakening these multilateral institutions in a way that gives the debtor some um, some leeway. And again, you could see that also to some extent in the beginning of the Eurozone crisis, right? Where in the very beginning, at least, the German right and the Dutch right were very much opposed to international bailouts for the Greek government. Um, and perhaps, you know, if that had persisted, it would have led to a Greek default by default. Um, yeah. And it, yeah. Um, you know, would have ended up very different. Well, I mean, yeah, I think good point to, to come on to the Greek case. And it does seem, I think, you know, in retrospect, you look at it and you think, well, um, there's probably, um, one would be naive at this point to, and indeed probably even naive in, in 2015 to expect that either any moral considerations or even a sign of longer term economic rationality in terms of the possibility for Greek growth and development um, or indeed for, for growth of the Eurozone as a whole, um, for that sort of economic rationality to prevail, um, short-term um, interests um, ended up being determining, you know, and also um, insisting on the power of finance and to, you know, for finance to sustain its power. And so, um, you know, maybe that you're better off actually dealing on the terms of that narrow self-interest and going, okay, well, um, maybe Greece should have taken the the exit door when it was um, to, held out at least by some, and particularly German and Dutch politicians. Anyway, so listeners are probably quite familiar um, with the Greek case, at least kind of in broad brush strokes. Um, we've done plenty of episodes on it, and I'm going to link to them in the show notes. Um, and 
mean, certainly on this podcast, we've been very critical of the capitulation of former Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras uh, to the Troika in 2015. But I would say, nevertheless, that listeners should uh, try to pick up a copy of Jerome's book because um, your retelling of it, Jerome, is pretty thrilling. I mean, I know how the you know <laughs> I know how the story ends, but I was still gnashing my teeth, kind of reading it, and I, you know to a certain extent through with the Argentinian case as well. Um, you know, kind of cheering on certain outcomes, even though you know what what happens. And um, with Greece, it was. Um, yeah, I guess more disheartening, um, even knowing what was coming. So um, I don't want to spend too long on Greece. I want to come to some of the broader takeaways and also um, fast forward, I guess, to the situation today, um, where there's a lot of talk of um, sovereign debt crises reemerging, particularly uh, in light of kind of raised interest rates in the core countries. But um, just on Greece, um, Quickly, what was the situation in 2010 um, and how much uh, did Greece owe and to whom? Well, I, I, I must admit that it's over 15, well, almost 15 years ago. So I, I, I kind of forgot the exact numbers. Greece No, no, but in, 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 very, in broad terms, you know, who, 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 right. who, yeah, who's holding the strings here? Greece owed a vast amount of money to um, the European banking system. And if you look at who held that debt, you find that actually the debt was highly concentrated among a number of systemically important banks in France and in Germany, and to a lesser extent in the Netherlands, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. And so this gave, especially the French, the German, the Dutch government, a very strong incentive from the very start to try to make sure that Greece would repay in full. Because a Greek default, at least in 2010, would have been catastrophic for the European banking system, which just had, co- had just come out of the global financial crisis of 2008, was still systemically vulnerable to a major shock. And um, it was simply politically impalatable for these you know, governments to try to bail out their own financial institutions a second time in the space of one or two years. So... At that time, we're talking about a situation which could have potentially pulled the rug from underneath the European banking system without that many options for European politicians to save the day, um, as they had done in the wake of the the, the crash of 2008. Yeah, and, and so, I mean, what's interesting, I think there's an element of, of um, kind of uh, missed, missed connections in this whole story, um, at least in as regards when Greece could have played hardball um, which would have been at an earlier moment than the big climax of 2015 with the referendum um, and the 61% who vote um, against honoring the moratorium and, and so on. So it, what's interesting, I think, I guess, is, is this moment in 2012, it seems, where um, because of um, the way that the debt was distributed, Greece was still holding on to a bomb um, and it had leverage. But it didn't play hardball then because it didn't have the government who was interested in doing that. It was it had a government which was much more interested in in applying austerity domestically um, and complying um, and acting in a European manner, um, in, in quotation marks, than um, than in in facing down the the creditors, even if it wasn't to go um, all out in default and leave the eurozone. Um, whereas by 2014 and f- 2015, certainly, um, what had happened was that there had been a successful holding operation where the debt was transferred off the balance sheets of French and German banks. And it seems to me that your argument there is that basically Greece didn't have the same degree of leverage, or at least um, the conditions were a bit more disfavorable by the time 2015 came around than they had been um, at the beginning of the decade. That's right. So if you look at the time when Syriza, uh, the radical left party, came into power in 2015, uh, when they really had their major standoff with the creditors, uh, the, the debt situation had changed. Um, so we could say that at that point, you know, the bomb that they had in their hand, that the Greek government had in its hands in 2010, 2011, 2012, uh, was no longer there. Um, but there was still, nevertheless, a bomb that they had, which was a bomb of Eurozone membership. And basically the only card that they could have played to try to unleash major economic consequences in the wider eurozone would have been to threaten to leave the eurozone because that in itself would have triggered probably a sort of cascading effect uh, unleashing a financial crisis in the creditor countries so a direct default by itself would not have been enough but it might have been enough through the mechanism of a euro of a eurozone exit especially if it had been disorderly um 
So I wouldn't say the government was entirely powerless, but the power dynamic had changed considerably. And so the government, you know, had to be aware to some extent of, you know, what cards it held in its hands. And it seems to me, or it seemed to me at the time, and still in hindsight, it does so today, that uh, Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras was not aware of those power dynamics um, and at least not willing to push his own position as far as needed in order to maximize the leverage that he did have. Although it was much reduced compared to 2010, um, he was simply not willing to use that space that he still had. Yeah, right. I mean, well, you know, I think, you know, even within the within um, German institutions, there was a certain division there as well, where Wolfgang Schauble was much much more willing to see Greece go. And I think that might have been um, a, a, a chance that, they should have taken um, that series. I should have taken, um, but I think what's interesting in this whole case as well is, you know, to talk about your or to return to your kind of the first two uh, mechanisms that you talk about, you know, market discipline and um, the role of uh, a central coordinating uh, institution, whether it's the IMF or in the Euro- this European case, you know, the European Central Bank and the Eurogroup. That um, when we talk about particularly market discipline, it's sounds like this distributed nature-like thing that the market reacts, but we don't really mean that there's a central brain deciding on things. It's just the, the way the market operates. But when it comes down to these cases, it actually seems far more political in the sense that there is an agency, there is a self-conscious agency actually deciding on these things. I mean, it's just a few dudes. Like it's a couple of bankers actually making these decisions and therefore their actions is not um, a kind of depoliticized market reacting in an autonomous manner, but it's people making calls for deliberate reasons and often pursuing ideological goals in a much more um, naked way, it seems. Absolutely. And I think especially the Greek case, because it was so negotiation intensive. It was a, a case where Greece was constantly around the table with its creditors, and it was constantly going back and forth, you know, in this tug of war over how the crisis was to be resolved. Uh, and that's partly a nature of you know, the complexity of European politics. Um, It was partly a consequence of the fact that you had multiple creditors at the table as well. So you didn't just have one set of creditors. You had the European Central Bank, you had the European Council, European Commission, you had the European um, uh, variety of institutions. Then you have the IMF as a kind of junior partner in there. Um, So you get this very complex dynamic where there is constantly uh, talks going on in, in every single direction. Um, and yes, ultimately, a lot of the decisions were made around a table um, by actual flesh and blood human beings. Um, but this is true even you know, when you're talking about market discipline, because ultimately in market discipline, it's a set of decisions that are made inside major financial institutions. Um, the difference is that it's private institutions that make the decisions. They're not... Um, there are no obligations to share the reasons for their decisions. They have no uh, democratic responsibility to report their decisions. They are simply a um, financial power that operates behind the scenes, if you will. But that is very much um, a force also of flesh and blood human beings. Um, so that's an important point to make. Uh, but I do think that because of the Greek case being so um, protracted and being so sort of played out in the open, um, we did get to see that political nature in a much more direct sense. And I think that's an important legacy of that crisis. It's very hard to make the case uh, in, in, in the Greek context that this was somehow a non-political issue. I mean, mm. a lot of it in the end was decided by politicians, whether elected or unelected. Um, and a lot of that played out within sort of the public sphere and was actively reported on. It was on the front page of the newspapers. And I think that did a lot of work in a sense for us as well, in terms of exposing those power dynamics, as the left, I mean, and um, putting out in the open um, the the very logic of the international debt system uh, for everyone to see. Yeah. And I mean, in the end, it also comes down to, you know, personnel to a degree on the debtor side as well. Um, as you conclude, and I, I completely buy this, that, you know, it comes down to an intra-party struggle within Syriza. And that's where it becomes determining, because here is a case where you did have mass popular uprising. You had 500,000 people out on Cinema Square before the um, before the referendum. You have an extremely conclusive referendum. So you have everything there for uh, decision makers, particularly for Alexis Tsipras, to try to, um, if not immediately leave the Eurozone, at least, um, well, and which, I mean, I think he absolutely should have done. But, you know, if we're trying to 
be objective and spell out what all the options were, um, at least play hardball in a very, very determined way and willing to um, see his bluff called, or rather not, you know, effectively not bluff, <laughs> to maybe put it that way. Um, and so I think it's probably then worth asking, because we know what actually ended up happening and that the more mainstream establishment wing of Syriza um, effectively won out. Um, and even those who maybe weren't keen on leaving the Eurozone, um, like Yanis Varoufakis, even he was ended up being sidelined because he um, his idea of playing well, of, of playing hardball was also kind of... Um, dismissed ruled out by by Tsipras so anyway I mean I, I you know it's it's a tragic um tragic situation of treason in, in my view um I think it's um completely disastrous and um, the European left has continued to pay for that um fateful decision but it's worth then spelling out what would honoring the popular will um at that referendum have actually looked like you know what were what were Greece's kind of concrete options, and what what does that look like um, so that it doesn't pursue the line that it ended up pursuing, which is effectively seeing a kind of Great Depression level um, fall in output with all the social consequences, but also with no prospect of recovery in the future either. Um, albeit there was some you know little burblings in the financial press of Greece returning to growth and so on, but you know um, it's a it's a it's a drop in the ocean. Well, what it would have required from the very outset, and I mean from day one of the series of government, um, was preparations for uh, an orderly exit from the eurozone. And orderly is, you know, it's just a word. Relative. It would never have been completely <laughs> orderly. It would have been um, organized to some extent. Uh, you can never know uh, what happens in these type of chaotic situations. Uh, but it is obvious that, you know, on a monumental scale like that, when you don't control your own currency, when your entire economy runs, um, you know, through uh, complex arrangements that are completely controlled by outside forces, the European Central Bank, um, by your your foreign creditors, um, you need to have a plan in place that allows you to pull the plug if push comes to shove, or at least to threaten that you have, you know, to, to wield a credible threat uh, that you're willing to do that. And it's, I think, ultimately the failure to do that, that put the government in a position where it was unable to really push on the confrontation with creditors. So I would submit that maybe, you know, when Tsipras actually surrendered, he did what was at that moment inevitable, but wouldn't have been inevitable if he had spent more time before that widening Mm -hmm. his options. And so I think that you know, looking back and reading Varoufakis's memoirs on the on the whole period, uh, there were ideas lying around as to how you can um, give yourself some breathing room to allow yourself to to leave the eurozone in a relatively orderly manner, um, to have the sort of financial uh, arrangements in place that allow you to continue your day to day economic uh, functioning without access to the eurozone system. Um, there were ideas in place, but they would have required much more uh, sophisticated planning and preparation that simply wasn't there um, by the time the referendum was held, which then convinced me in hindsight that, in fact, the referendum was meant to be a ploy on the part of yeah. uh, Tsipras not to actually leave or push against the creditors, but actually to get the population behind him to surrender. And that then made me reassess the situation and think, okay, Maybe this was his plan all along. Maybe he was simply, um, his ambition was not necessarily to um, be the hero who ends the debt crisis and frees the Greek people, but rather to become um, the new mainstream left party in Greece. Yeah. To replace Basok as the sort of main opponent of the new democracy um, and become the sort of main figure on the left in, in Greek, on the center left in Greek politics. And that that required, to some extent, a policy that was, quote unquote, sensible enough to allow Greece to continue within the Eurozone with the support of its creditors. And that, you know, ultimately that might mean um, surrendering uh, certain um, demands. Um, but he probably felt in hindsight that he had the popular support to do that. Um, I think he just grossly miscalculated what the outcome of the referendum would be and how willing the Greeks were to take it further. Um, and I think there he underestimated totally the radicalization of Greek society, 
um, and the, the strength of the popular movements, the, the intensity of the hatred against the creditors and against the, the Greek political establishment. I think the Greeks were willing to go much further than Alexis Tsipras yeah. was. And in that respect, I think that people like Varoufakis or the left wing of the Syriza uh, party, they write the situation better. Um, they understood that at least the people were willing to take this further, this confrontation. Um, unfortunately, they didn't have the, the preparation in place to actually pull that off in a material sense. Um, and that I blame on Alexis Tsipras. Yeah, no, I mean, that's been my reading of it as well. And it's a reading in which it comes off far worse than merely um, naive. Um, I think, which would, which would be the other reading where he just stumbled into a situation where he wasn't fully aware of what the consequences would be or what going taking things to their logical consequence would look like. No, I think it's it's much worse than that. Um, I think then it's worth asking, you know, having looked at these three cases and also um, having looked at these three cases and looking forward to future debt crises, which will sovereign debt crises, which are inevitable, um, is whether there's not a historical record which can be... Um, thrown up as a further reason why one should default, actually, for all that it causes a lot of immediate difficulties. Um, and you stress throughout the book the way that the spillover costs in our age where finance is so central to accumulation are very severe. Um, it can cause really an economy to completely seize up um, down to the very lowest level up to the very top of it. Um, but nevertheless, you know, we have a historical record which shows that recovery is much faster if you're able to default. Um, and so that despite all the evident chaos and poverty and dislocation caused by default, it at least presents a horizon of escaping permanent austerity and debt bondage. So is there not a case now to be made to, to return to the question? Actually, no, defaulting now, not only are there, are, is there um, all the logic behind defaulting that was always there in the Mexican and Argentinian and Greek cases, but now that we also have, um, you know, ever more proof effectively of um, how bad not defaulting is? Well, I think that the economic literature that we have shows two things. It shows on the one hand that default can be extremely costly in the short term. And by that, I mean catastrophic in the short term, um, especially the first six months. That's what we saw in Argentina as well, um, where it can completely cause the economy to freeze up. Um, but by and large, after about two or three years, sometimes even less, those consequences have largely evaporated and a country that has defaulted will be able to regain access to international credit markets and restart growing uh, precisely because it has shaken off the burden of the debt and a lot that allows it to start growing again, investors will come back because they're looking not at a past history of default, they're looking at a future history of potential gains. So the reality is that if you look at how creditors actually respond to crises, they have very short memories. They have very short memories, which gives opportunities to developing countries to pursue much more aggressive policies uh, than they actually do if they're looking at it with a long view. But obviously, most governments are not looking at it with a long view because they're looking at it from the perspective of what will happen to my chances of re-election in the next election, but also what will happen if you know people are not able to get insulin tomorrow because our medicine importers are not able to access trade credit. You know, will I be lynched in the streets if the economy mm -hmm. collapses because I defaulted on the debt? There is that fear of the unknown consequences of a default that withhold, withholds governments, even left-wing ones, from from literally just pulling the plug uh, and and going for it. Um, and so I think that you know, however much we might want to see that type of heroic outcome, it is always going to be very hard for governments in a financialized context and a globalized context to do that. Um, and sort of get away with it unscathed. And if a left-wing government does it, it better prepare the ground. It better involve popular movements and ensure that it has the people on its side uh, because it's gonna be a very hard first couple of months uh, that you're gonna go through um, if you do default. And we can see that in the cases of the countries that did default. You look at Argentina, you look at Sri Lanka, you look at the countries where you know there was a simple inability to repay because there's simply not the money to do so. Um, the consequences were often horrific. So coming sort of out of this study, uh, you know, I, I went in as an activist saying like, I'm going to call for default because I think it's the best thing to do. Mm. Um, coming out of it, I still believe in that in principle, but I am also more hedged in my, 
proposals because I feel that it's easy to say um, if you're not Greek, if you're not me coming from a creditor country from the Netherlands, going to Greece, calling on the Greek government to default. And then, you know, because I think that's a heroic action and then not taking into account what that would mean for the Greek people for over the next six months would be, I think, irresponsible to a certain extent. Um, nevertheless, you know, I would like to see more governments pushing back against their creditors in that way because it would lead to a better outcome for everyone in the end. Yeah. If there were more countries defaulting, it would it would tame financial markets in a sense because they would stop lending in such irresponsible ways to countries that might default. So there's a there's a sort of catch-22 here. Like it's 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 clear that a default is better in the long run. It's also extremely painful in the short run. That makes it uh, highly unlikely that even um, you know, a radical left government will pursue it. So we have to ask the question, you know, what do we need to do in this context? What is the responsibility of those of us who live in the creditor countries? And how can we unite forces with those in the debtor countries to pursue a kind of global solution, a cross-border solution that would be more in the interest of the debtors? Yeah. Yeah, no. So, I mean, I, I think that question of responsibility is important, but I I kind of have come away from reading your book and obviously not having done the work of, of actually writing it, which is an entirely different different thing and being so immersed in it. But um, from, from a different conclusion, which is really, no, that the responsibility is to be explicit and to tell people um, in debtor countries that you have, that there's a choice between devastation, social devastation, and no future, and social devastation and the possibility of a future. Um, and that, 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 you know, maybe the balance, you know, balances out kind of different ways, depending on how much in debt a country is to whom they owe the debt, what the possibilities are, and whether they can play hardball and um, get a better deal out of um, the situation without going as far as actually um, unilaterally defaulting. But nevertheless, um, I think, you know, the, the lesson that I take from it is precisely that, you know, the carrying on that burden of debt and compliance with the illusion that there might be a future um, at the end of it is something that people should be disabused of. You know, that's, that would be our responsibility. I a hundred percent agree with you on that. And I think that ultimately, you know, like when push comes to shove in the Greek case, for instance, I would still have said, even if you're unprepared, it would even then have been better to pull the plug. Because mm -hmm. if you look at what happened, the actual outcome, what happened is that Greece in the years since the defeat of the anti-austerity movement and the Syriza government in 2015, um, essentially has been, you know, according to financial market terms, slowly recovering. But when it comes to actual poverty levels, when it comes to inequality levels, when it comes to all the indicators that we care about on the left, has been either stagnant or doing worse. And an entire generation of people have been living, basically surviving on minimum wages five, six, seven hundred euros a month, um, which is impossible. It's impossible to live like this. And you see the consequences now that Greece is being hit by a number of other crises, you know, whether it's, um, you know, the, the train crash that we saw a couple of months ago, that's yeah. a direct consequence of austerity measures in public transport, whether it's the inability to fight the forest fires um, that are unleashed across um, large parts of Greece right now um, due to cuts on, um, you know, on the firefighting services. All of this is having knock-on effects that will stay with Greece, not just for years, but for decades to come. So ultimately, when push comes to shove, clearly it's better to default in the case of Greece or a country as sort of as in a straight extremist situation as Greece was in. Um, I think what's equally important is to think of what we can try to do to prevent such things from happening again. And that requires, I think, more solutions at the structural level, um, because ultimately this is a structural problem. Um, so we're encountering um, at the moment a debt crisis that sees 54 countries, according to the UN, uh, struggling to repay their debts. Um, that doesn't just happen because these countries woke up one morning and found themselves, um, you know, in a large debt that they didn't know how, you know, it got there, you know? Yeah. That's a structural problem. And it's a structural problem. It's been a structural problem for 40 or 50 years. Um, that we have these cycles of lending booms followed by debt crises and that these debt crises are managed in such a way that the lenders are repaid in full and the debtors have to pay the full burden of adjustment. 
Um, how do we deal with that? I mean, ideally, there would be more defaults at the individual level, but it would be even better if we had a structural solution that prevented these countries from falling into crisis in the first place. And if they do fall into crisis, that allows us to restructure those debts and you know, give significant debt relief um, on the basis of clearly identified rules that basically force the debtors, sorry, the force the creditors to write down their holdings, even when they don't want to, yeah. that, you know, subject them to a set of rules, international rules that we also have at the national level, where we have bankruptcy regimes that provide the debtors with certain protections. And I, I know that's not an ideal solution. We need to go much further than that. Um, but it would be a first step towards preventing this type of situation from spinning out of control in the future once more. So if you've got a second still, um, I just wanted to explore um, one question, which I think a lot of these discussions, on, particularly on the left, always get stuck on. Um, and that is that for all that your discussion of the way that countries are prevented from defaulting um, and your, your focus is on structural power and structural questions, that there's a subjective one, which is that no one is willing to countenance disruption today. Um, for all that the dis- disruption that is imposed by, you know, uh, effectively that, you know, the debt burden um, and the austerity that is demanded is itself a, a disruption. Um, no one's willing to, you know, blow up the bomb or at least even make the threat of blowing up the bomb that you hold in your hand, um, that that debt bomb. And you can see it, I think it played out even more widely. I mean, it was certainly the case with Brexit, that even if those on the left who were like, well, the EU isn't a good thing, but, you know, for the Britain to leave unilaterally, um, that's terrible. That's wrong. We need to kind of collectively reform the EU, which I think is a, you know, I think is an, is an illusion, is, is impossible, um, or that we somehow need to get everyone to club together um, so that to act um, in unison um, at some degree and have in some degree of unity. And on the debt question, I mean, I, I certainly think that, you know, the attempt to create a debtors union um, at the sovereign level, and indeed, you know, kind of a household level for that matter as well, would be incredibly important. But that always seems to act as a sort of discursive block to ever acting unilaterally. Um, and that when it push comes to shove, the only way that anything is going to happen is if someone who's in the position um, often of desperation um, or of opportunity, um, desperation being Greece and opportunity being the UK, um, to, to leave when you can. And that that might then have kind of follow-on effects because it ultimately seems to be that if no one's willing to make that first step, that no step is ever taken because the collective action problem is too insurmountable to kind of let's get everyone together all at the same time, all on the same page with you know governments with sympathy um, between them. And that just becomes a block towards any... Um, sense of progress or change whatsoever. No, I agree. And I, I think that's what we see also in practice. I mean, there was an attempt that I mentioned before in the Argentine case in the 1980s after the transition to democracy to create a debtor's cartel to oppose the creditor's cartel. And it failed. And it failed for a particular reason. Um, and that was because many of the other Latin American countries felt that Actually, Argentina's attempts were undermining not just Argentina's capacity to lend, lend, to borrow money on international markets, but also their own. So what you get is you get the Mexican government looking at what Argentina is doing and getting scared that investors in New York will think that all Latin American countries are alike. They all want to create a debtor's cartel, and uh, therefore uh, we need to slap higher borrowing costs on them. Mexico fears that, and out of what you know has been called credit rating self-preservation, um, tries to undermine, actively undermine the Argentine effort to create a united debtor front and um, actually starts giving money to Argentina to repay its debts. So there was a debtor-led bailout of Argentina so that Argentina wouldn't go against its creditors. Hmm. And so that is, I think, an interesting uh, notion, this notion of credit rating self-preservation, undermining attempts to create unity amongst the debtors. Um, we see the same thing happening when it comes to labor organizing, right? Like there's this inherent difficulty in collective action, which is that, you know, some people, especially those who are closer to their employers, or in this case, closer to their creditors, can be bought off with perks. And when they're bought off with perks, they will try to undermine any efforts by their colleagues to, you know, rock the boat. And so I think that collective action on the debt question is very hard. It's worth pursuing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but you're right. I mean, insofar as, you know, a single country is concerned, it might sometimes be the only way to just go it, you know, go it alone. Mm. And that's why in the Greek case, that's still the outcome that 
I personally would have preferred, um, although it was obviously never up to me to decide. All right. So just to conclude, I guess, um, and to look to the present day and indeed the future, um, what's emerged over the past decade, especially, is you know China as a as a major lender. Um, and there's a lot of talk about debt trap diplomacy, which um, you know lots of people have raised questions about. It's unclear to what extent that is uh, the the main way that. China actually operates. But regardless, what you see today is um, a China which is pretty reluctant to write down or restructure its lending. And at the same time, you have um, a couple of defaults quite recently of um, Zambia, Sri Lanka and Ghana, I think all um, in many cases with substantial uh, debts owed to, to China. So how does China's entry into this and in, in general, the kind of move to a more multilateral world um, change matters? Does it actually maybe open up a bit more policy space and a few more options to countries because you know for example if you're in hawk to uh, the americans and the europeans that you know the chinese might come along and offer you uh, a different option and you can play them against each other or is it the fact that it's just another major player who also wants to see its debts repaid and it's just another um you know another uh, hand holding the vice well ultimately it depends on who you ask because i mean you, you could ask the new york times or you could ask the international financial establishment, what they think of China's entry into the global financial architecture as a major lender. Um, and they would say that it greatly complicates matters because now you've got another major creditor at the table. It's the single biggest bilateral lender. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, there is a perspective, a sense that China is unwilling to write down its debts and that therefore it becomes even more complicated to manage these international debt crises. Um, there's an element of truth in this, but I think the story is also a lot more complex than the way it's being painted in some of these articles that we're reading in the Financial Times or the New York Times. Um, first of all, we have to recognize that the rules of the international system that is in place today were created by the countries of the West. China is getting involved in an anarchical situation in which essentially the um, creditors created no clear agreements on what must happen in the case of a debt crisis with someone's unsustainable debts. Mm. So what we have is a system that is deliberately organized in such a way that it allows the creditors to negotiate with uh, distressed debtor countries on a one-by-one -one basis in ad hoc negotiations um, that basically put all the power in the hands of the creditors. Because what you get is instead of a series of sort of organized roundtables or organized uh, system of, uh, of rules, what you get is just every time a crisis crops up, you get a bunch of creditors sitting at the table with one individual debtor country and fleshing out the terms for some kind of debt deal and trying to delay a restructuring or provision of debt relief as long as possible and trying to make sure that whatever debt relief is obtained is as little as possible. In other words, you know, trying to extract the last pound of flesh, trying to get as much money back as they can. That's in their natural interest. It's what they do. It, it makes sense if you're uh, you know, a hard-headed capitalist that that's how you would want to do it. This is precisely why at the national level, you've got some kind of institutional arrangements to prevent creditors from throwing debtors into prison uh, or from literally you know, hacking off a hand or you know, doing some other horrible things mm. in order to make them repay their debts. We recognize at the national level that we need to provide protections to debtors um, and that the creditors' claims are limited to a certain uh, degree. At the international level, we have no such arrangement. We have no international bankruptcy scheme. We have no international debt restructuring mechanism. And so what we get are these unilateral negotiations ad hoc that put all the bargaining power in the hands of the creditors. Now, obviously, it complicates matters if suddenly China comes into the picture a very powerful, very large country that is individually a much bigger creditor than any individual Western country is or any individual Western bank is. And when that country can suddenly start making its own demands, it obviously throws this whole sort of debt system into chaos. Um, so, you know, from one perspective, you could say, okay, you know, China's entry complicates matters, but it complicates matters precisely because the West has systematically refused to lay down any rules to allow debt restructuring to happen in an orderly fashion over the past 40 or 50 years. So I blame the current standoff over Zambia, which has now recently been resolved, but it took three years to restructure Zambia's debt. Three years. 
um, after they defaulted at the height of the coronavirus pandemic. I blame that situation not on China's entry, but I blame it on the fact that we don't have an international financial architecture that allows for an orderly restructuring of debts. That was the problem to begin with. That's the structural problem. What China is essentially doing in these negotiations, it's not saying that it doesn't want to restructure its debts. It says that it will only restructure its debts if the West does the same. And they see the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, as an arm of the Western creditor countries. They're not entirely wrong to see it that way, because as I show in my book, I mean, they're basically, the IMF is the international financial policeman of the creditor states. Mm. That's what it does. It enforces the debt contracts of Western creditors. It's its job, essentially, unofficially, but that's what it does. So what the what the Chinese are saying is, we are not going to provide debt relief if the IMF and the World Bank do not do the same. And so you get a standoff, because the Western creditor countries say, no, the World Bank and the IMF are preferred creditors. They must always be repaid first, and they must always be repaid in full. Otherwise, they cannot give what is called concessional lending. They cannot give these loans on very low interest rates, and they cannot play the role of this international financial policeman. So basically, it's a standoff between West and, and, and China over the question of how to readjust the burden, how to distribute the burden of adjustment for debt write-downs, right? Um, it's an old problem. It's a problem that the West created. It just got a whole lot more complicated because China is involved and because they don't see eye to eye. Uh, now, finally, in the Zambian case, there was an agreement. Um, still, there is no agreement on what private creditors will do. There was an agreement on what China will do, what the Western bilateral lenders will do. Um, and so it seems that, you know, at, at last there is some debt relief for Zambia. But this, again, is a structural problem. It will persist. It will keep coming back, you know, despite, um, you know, some rhetorical efforts to create a common framework uh, for the resolution of international debt crises. There's really nothing that has happened at a systematic level that allows us to resolve these issues uh, in an orderly fashion. And in a way that protects creditor interests, sorry, that protects debtor interests, and that um, that forces the creditors to participate um, equally in the distribution of the burden of adjustment. Um, so that's what I would say about this China question. Um, it's complicated, uh, but we cannot blame it on China's entry alone. Mm -hmm. This was a structural problem that existed long before China came into the picture. All right. Very good. Um, well, I think we'll leave that there. But Jerome, thanks so much. I've taken up a huge amount of your time, but that's all been um, incredibly interesting and um, I think clarifying as well. Thank you so much for having me on. Cheers. All right, boys, that was a long interview, but I think really rich. Um, personally, I find the subject matter fascinating. Um, some immediate takeaways? Yeah. I thought this was great, um, I have to say. There was a few areas where I think I would maybe shift the balance um, or, or the emphasis perhaps in a different way from the way that Jerome did, particularly with respect to Greece. But it was... Um, it was fascinating to to think about, and I also particularly appreciated the fact that he had, you know, I guess that you could be encouraged, perhaps, that somewhere there is, you know, people will read this, um, people who might be kind of significant policymakers um, in countries in a new kind of, um, you know, more multipolar world of the future, and that having read this book, they might feel more emboldened and more, and more confident to mm. take decisions on um, credit default in a way that they might not have done over the last 30 years of um, US hegemony um, or indeed in the Cold War. So, I mean, I think, you know, that I also appreciated that. Um, but one, I suppose, a few things that stuck with me was this, I thought his point about how like, you know, the um, the way in which the world kind of the Bretton Woods institutions have been retooled to the purposes of enforcing austerian discipline as part of um, as part of debt and finance. I mean, it's a story that I was aware of, but what I didn't really appreciate was that the old system, whereby it was the investors who accepted the level of you know accepted default, and that countries accepted the fact that if they wanted, you know, if they wanted investment from abroad, they also had to um, accept the interest rates that came with the increased possibility of default. Um, that all of that, in fact 
if we went back to that world, which would give greater um, policy options and, you know, kind of um, grid, give greater political maneuver to um, poorer countries or countries with weaker currencies or countries that don't control their own currency, it would actually be closer to a market system than mm. the system that we have at the moment, where you have these kinds of, you know, um, you know, which is effectively just enforced. You know, it's cartelized and um, enforced because creditors don't actually take on any risk. I mean, that's the kind of amazing thing yeah. of the whole yeah. system is that there is no risk for the financiers, the people who lend these and control these enormous kind of sums of financial resources, cash, capital, and so on. They actually don't confront any risk as you would have done in the 1930s or in the late 19th century. So anyway, I thought that was kind of fascinating that the that a yeah. better future um, would be one where you had less centralized control through um, supranational institutions that are dominated by America at least since the early 1980s, if not before, in terms of um, all of that. It's not a new point, but the idea that you know the reality is that we don't live in a free market economy or there, there being a genuine kind of free enterprise competitive system. And this is a point that's often made in terms of looking at the domestic economy, but it's interesting to see it reflected at the international level where you basically have, a, again, a cartel of um, yeah. a, a cartel of creditors backed up and organized by international institutions who make sure that they get paid back. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, a pretty sweet system for the for the creditors but yeah i was i was struck by you know this idea that in neoclassical economic theory you would expect a higher level of default like you know why do what there is a question why do states um from that perspective uh pay back debts even in times of crisis well you know that then you need to look not at the economic but at the political um explanations no i think yeah i think it was a great it was a really good interview made me think of default the two sweetest words in the english language i mean that's what that's that should have been the subtitle that's a reference that you might or might not get but i just was rumbling around my head listeners will get it uh, alex is looking at me some some listeners will get it the older the older millennials kind of depressed and defeated hanging around in darkened rooms watching old episodes of their favorite infantilizing TV show on loop. They might get it, George. That's true. They might. They might. They sound cool guys. Um, no, but just to put this, some of this next to um, the interview that we had with Saurabh Amari, the idea there of the kind of the way that rich corporate or the way that corporations are treated in bankruptcy um, proceedings, the, that, that kind of bankruptcy court in America just makes it just shows the i guess the um, the complete difference here where if you were as a state to to default to declare bankruptcy you don't have this um court which is going to allow you to produce another shell nation and transfer all of your assets <laughs> to that one and just leave the debts in the bad nation and then you know rebrand your nation <laughs> rebrand <laughs> that's an yeah, idea i mean but like this is i guess it just um it just really struck me that the the more you look into the um the bankruptcy courts in america and the way that you know potential i guess it is potentially bankrupt states are treated there's no you know there's no comparison really well it could be you know Euro, uh, european member state greece to independent republic greece um, that could have been a, a rebrand. Indeed, that yeah. No, indeed. That would, in fact, have been, that would, in fact, be exactly that, you know, um, the equivalent of that at the international level. And it also made me think, I mean, this is a debate, like you said, Alex, in your discussion with um, with Jerome, that, um, you know, and it's a point we've made repeatedly on this pod, is that the European Union is the most kind of intensively developed of this new kind of state, Um the member state in the context of the European Union, because it involves direct, you know, direct membership of a politically self-conscious regional grouping. But the kinds of those um, cross-country kind of uh, collaborations and institutionalized um, collaboration networks and so on, those extend much, much further. And so the point that Jerome made about how, you know, as part of this process, you need people on the inside of the relevant states who 
will who don't see themselves you know they're a com, you know compradors i suppose a comprador elite to use an old-fashioned turn of phrase well, explain what um, that means to listeners who aren't familiar with what a comprador so means. the comprador elite was kind of the old term used in the cold war era and perhaps earlier to explain um elites that were oriented it was particularly used in relation to latin america and africa but to explain certain kinds of elites perhaps associated most directly with um extractive raw materials industries who by the nature of the um, political economy that they were directly involved with or associated with or dependent on that were organized all their political interests were organized or oriented outwards instead of to domestically to their own kind of society and citizens they were oriented towards the um you know the old colonial powers or European. Yeah, I, I think it was actually used with, with regard to China already in the nineteenth century. Um, I don't know where exactly it was used first, but it might have been. I mean, this you know it's a span sounds like a Spanish word, so I'm guessing it originated perhaps in the nineteenth century um, Latin American kind of debates. Anyway, by the, it's by the by, it was only to say that what was what I found fascinating was this. Well, the aspect of it is that they because you know that part of the way in which um, the uh, independence is eliminated in the wider world outside of the European Union is through integration into these international institutions yeah. and yeah. how they manage and regulate credit. And I suppose, you know, I mean, on one level that's obvious, right? But I suppose what I didn't appreciate until I listened to the discussion was the fact that it's not just a, you know, it's not just a question of hard accounting or access to resources, but also comes with a certain kind of political identity and political orientation, that integration into these institutions and dependence on these institutions, the same way that the Greek elite, including the political left-wing elite of Syriza and all of its kind of, um, you know, its cadre and its core supporters who weren't on the left of the party, they had the political identity with the European Union. Yeah. Um, and it was this that they were unwilling to break. So by extension, it seems to me that an important part of the kind of um, these processes of international integration is also this kind of political socialization that occurs um, and is not just a matter of access to financial resources. Yeah. Um, well, it's not just political socialization. I mean, you know, it's also that the there is there's an incentive structure, right? You You know, the... What was the point that, that Jerome made? It was like the, the incentive structure for detonations to be friendly to creditors. You know, there is a there's a mechanism there where you know the rules of the game. And in order to have access to to future credit, you have to you have to toe the line. So there is a there is a disciplining sure. effect, which is but, but which I, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, that, that's, that's, that's what, what I'm saying. Was saying. I think that that yeah. that aspect of incentives is is obvious. That's the kind of top the more obvious point. What is less remarked upon is the the political socialization where people come to see themselves as like I'm the leader of this. I'm you know part of the elite of this nation, and I want us to be a good IMF creditor, a, a participant of um, the WTO, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and that they're socialized into that through their education very often because you know an Argentinian prime minister might have gone to um, Harvard and studied economics with the same people who are the creditors or the IMF people who they're negotiating with. So um, that's the it's also the, the kind of the thing. Yeah, the structure of world politics is such that being, you know, being kind of a successful leader doesn't mean being a leader who leads your country's national interests, even if they entail clashing with powerful international forces abroad, creditors, making sharp breaks. It means kind of, you know, collaborating with those leading institutions. That's what it means to be. In contrast yeah. to kind of national populist leaders of the early 20th century. You know, and I so, guess that's you know that's probably why there was a lot of talk of take back control in your introduction, Alex. And you know, sorry, but I do have to pick you up on on this because it's not take back control; it's take control. So you know, there's a there's a book on this subject which is not bad. Um, I would say the point here being that yeah, maybe this is the kind of the political lesson here is ultimately the more that our political leaders are, you know vertically integrated with with the nation are responsible to and accountable to 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 voters and the less that they see what you know see what they do is horizontally attaching themselves to other uh, national elites or to you know imf mates that they might have been to university with that's the that's the that's i guess the political part of the process i mean the policy decision might be debt default but 
that's never going to happen unless you have that um, vertical mechanism of accountability rather than a horizontal glad handing and matiness with uh, with your peers um, who might have you know been to university at the same time and now work for the IMF. I disagree with George because the book is actually very good. It's not just okay, but I also believe the one that he's mentioning. But also, I think listeners will be treated to a discussion of it in due course. So um, keep an eye yeah. out for that. I mean, when we have it. just on the take back control. I mean, you know, Argentina under a national populist uh, leadership under Perón, for example, you know, they they had control. The working class wasn't in control. In fact, the working class was very much kind of used and, and dragged along by a, a by a Peronist administration, which kind of split the difference between the working class and the elite. Um, but at a national level, yeah, they had much more national autonomy, Argentina did, under Peron, than they do, um, you know, under kind of uh, IMF uh, trusteeship or, um, you know, tu- tutorship. I can't remember the, the the exact word. So, you know, I think it taking back control, tutelage, uh, is, 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 uh, taking back control isn't exactly i mean it, um, it partly control. it partly answers our question i mean you know also those projects of national developmentalism you know were also failed projects as well and it's mm. precisely the kind of the bad smell that lingers around the idea of peronism um irresponsible kind of populism and um the rest of it and kind of political plebeianism and what have you i mean those are not you know kind of uh, it's not i'm not by any means suggesting that peronism is a simple phenomenon far from it but it's only to say that the um you know kind of the fact that we are where we are is also itself a historical product of failed you know failed um, national developmentalism in the 20th century there is a point where i mean just to pick up on what george said um because i think there was and this is i think the only part where i kind of um diverged from what um jerome was saying which is to do with the to do with the kind of the way the story played out in greece so i think and you pushed him a bit on this alex but it was you know there seems to me the central point remains that exiting from the eurozone should have been the option not just a kind of a hard bargaining tactic i mean that was varifakis's idea and it was a you know i mean it was a fairly obvious bluff and it doesn't seem to me there was much way of um making that bluff credible. Um, You just simply had to do it. And at the same time, you know, it wasn't just a question of more technical planning. There's certainly plenty more technical planning was needed to manage, you know, what would have been a tremendously difficult and tortuous kind of extraction from the currency zone and to restore the drachma. You know, that would have been a formidable task for any country, let alone for a country country led by a party as irresponsible as Syriza, right? But notwithstanding that... I don't think it was technical policy planning that was the most crucial element, but rather the character of the democratic weight and confidence and authority that the party, you know, how far the party could rely on that. And the truth is they had a lot of it. You know, they had a lot of democratic credibility. They had a tremendous amount of popular support. Whether or not, you know, how deeply institutionalized those links were is an open question given the structure of Greek party politics. Um, but nonetheless, you know, they had, you know, the, that primary question of democratic credibility, of having the people behind them, they had plenty of that. But they didn't have with faith in faith in the people at the end of the day and faith in their own kind of um, democratic legitimacy in order to be able to ask the Greek people to undergo the strains of reestablishing the drachma. And so anyway, they, I mean, it's not... it's yeah. They didn't believe in themselves. They didn't back themselves to do it. I mean, yeah, that, that's that's. What I think you're that's saying. essentially right. They didn't want it enough, as the football cliche would. Uh, I think well, that's I mean, essentially you... right. So, I mean, it's not. It's only to say. I mean, I don't disagree with you know the main story that he tells, but I think the bal- I would balance the story more towards the question of democratic authority and legitimacy rather than um, you know the amount of kind of policy papers they had or didn't have with respect to restoring the drachma. So one final question, which is hinted at in the interview, but worth um, highlighting again here: the to free country for countries to free themselves from onerous and indeed odious debt, and perhaps even uh, in general to free themselves from you know arrangements that they have locking them into transnational organizations, um, which uh, are actually just forms of disciplining nations, but it's more, even more so disciplining the working class of those countries or impeding any sort of popular politics. Uh, to do that, you need a massive public 
a popular uprising. Um, that is, um, you know, in, in Jerome's schema, that's pretty clear that you need that element as a bare minimum um, to make the balance of forces such that it forces national elites to be like, crap, we can't shift the um, burden of this debt um, through austerity onto the working class. So that's necessary. The issue is, I think, um, that for a country like Greece or Argentina, let alone somewhere like Zambia, which is uh, current, you know, which is uh, recently defaulted and had IMF bailouts and so on, um, is that you know if they try to go it alone, they're going to be crushed anyway, right? So it makes the example that they might provide um, not necessarily appetizing, right? Um, you know, Argentina right now is used more even than Venezuela by the Brazilian elite to say, hey, watch out, you know, we don't don't want to go the Argentina way. Um, and and I think you know if Greece had had um, you know pursued um, whether as a plan A or plan B um, leaving the eurozone uh, and and by consequence probably the European Union it would have um, maybe served as a negative example um, to Italy or to Spain and Portugal etc. Um, so you have a situation actually where the country is best able to break free from these entanglements break free from uh, multilateral organizations or try to renegotiate the structure of international politics and international economy uh, are the most powerful countries. But um, in somewhere like Britain, you know, which did leave the European Union, there was no popular uprising. There was a ballot box uh, moment, but, you know, there wasn't people in the streets. It wasn't the kind of uh, push for disruption and disorder that would be necessary to really um, break free. So, the, the the question is, I guess, um, you know, what do you do about this paradox? Um, the countries best suited to really break free are the rich ones, but the rich ones uh, generally aren't willing to um, broach uh, and, and deal with the disruption kind of necessary to really break free. Well, just quickly on, on your your characterization of Brexit, there may not have been any popular uprising, but there was there was the threat of, you know, the armed gammon storming the streets with their no but i mean you know that you're being you're you're glib about it i get the the glibness points that they're actually the glibness points that there actually wasn't that you know um well then it's not required right you don't need to have a popular uprising to to break away from these transnational well networks i guess the but my, my point with brexit would be that you know you ended up with a kind of brexit in name only right nothing very much has changed in fact britain seems quite a lot like <laughs> like Britain 2015 now um, despite it being 2023 so I don't I mean it. I disagree I think you know and I mean perhaps we should save this discussion for when we discuss the brilliant book that George mentioned um, in it's course. improving it's gone from not bad to pretty good to amazing incredible it is in fact amazing and incredible but obviously unbiased but listeners can make up their own mind when we talk about it notwithstanding that no i mean i think that's quite right alex um it was much more fraught internally in britain than um than it seemed and also there was no doubt that the negotiations were taking were playing very close uh you know um very closely observing the internal tumult in Parliament and in British society more generally, and taking their cue from what was happening inside of British society. And like Jerome said, even though there was nothing financial at stake in terms of a default or withdrawal from a common currency in the case of Britain's exit from the European Union, there was still very much that, um, you know, a whole, not just a kind of a narrow elite, but a whole swathe of society who were deeply vested in terms of their stake in Britain's membership of a wider organization. So it mapped out and it wasn't just a single plebiscite. You know, there were the ballot box revolt continued over a number of general elections and the European parliamentary elections as well. I I can take all that, but still go meh at it because, you know, you're close to it. I'm, I'm looking at it from afar. And for me, it looks nothing like the level of social unrest that Greece saw or that Argentina saw in, in, in 2000, 2001. No, there so. wasn't. There wasn't as much as in Argentina, certainly, or um, perhaps even in Greece. But a lot of the Greece thing was performative. You know, I mean, and this is something that was, ob- you know, I mean, I, you know, it was clear to me at the time. Your, Jerome says he sees it kind of clearly in retrospect. The referendum was entirely performative. There was no, that there was, was clear. Was. But, but, so, but I mean, the, degree, the half the a million people of, in the streets around the referendum you know, for all the fact that it might have been, you know, kind of like you say, it might have come with more kind of popular tumult. It was still more performative than the actual kind of the way in which politics ground out in the context of Brexit. 
I don't think we need to get stuck on Brexit because it's not really relevant to questions of default anyway, and we'll come to talk about it. Um, but I think, you know, there is a, um, there is kind of uh, there is the questions of withdrawal, the kind of the difficult and tortuous character of withdrawal from being meshed into these larger structures that limit your political options as a country. That I think is going to recur in the 20th century, and it, yeah. sorry, the 21st century, and it probably will take the form of de- default. But I'd flip what you said, Alex, about Zambia, right? Because the point is, in a world, in an old-fashioned kind of pre pre Mexican crisis world. Right. The point is that countries that can default also hold cards, right? whereas now they hold no cards. It's precisely their lack of willingness to default that means that they hold no cards. So in an earlier era, you know, like a country like Zambia would actually, its willingness to kind of um, renounce debt unilaterally would have been an actual kind of thing it could have in its back pocket, whereas now it has nothing in its back pocket. Well, as Jerome points out, you know, there's a lot of short-term pain, extreme pain, um, in defaulting, but um, creditors have short memories and will want to loan again. So I think this is his point that, you know, within three years, five years, they'll probably want to loan again um, to to a country like Zambia. I mean, Zambia is not a good example because it did not unilaterally default. It's been bailed out by the IMF, so it's not a not a good um, case in reality. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I do take your point. Um, maybe we'll leave this here. There's a, loads more that we could pull out from this. And I think a lot of these wider questions of, um, you know, nation states, unilateral action, and the way that they're wrapped up into uh, these very um, powerful organizations, which exist to sustain the neoliberal status quo. is something that we're going to continue um, debating on this podcast. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Hope uh, you've taken a lot from it. And we look forward to your uh, questions comments and criticisms, which we'll discuss at the next Alpha Bonus Bonus. That's it from us for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.